Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today's episode is going to be a treat because this is one of those personal favorite movies of mine. This is one that I have loved for years and years, and it's one of those that you really don't ever hear people talk about, and it always kind of bothered me about that. But at the same time, that's always kind of make me, made me a little proud because I always felt like I was one of the few people out there who really loves this movie. And it was kind of like my own little secret movie that other people don't talk about. So uh, the movie we are talking about is the 2000 Dennis Quaid movie called Frequency, which, again, an absolutely fantastic movie that everyone I know who has seen it seems to love. But not that many people have seen it. So it's one I really it's one I really want to delve into here. A surprisingly complex plot. A surprisingly moving plot, I will say this is a movie that can make me tear up like instantaneously in certain scenes, and we will get into that. There's some uh, father-son issues in this movie that I think are rather powerful. And uh, anyway, yeah, so we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. And my guest for this one, one of my all-time favorite guests on Staff Picks, uh, I've had him on before. He did Swingers. He did Johnny Dangerously. This is a friend of mine, been going back several years. We've known each other through the Survivor community for a long time. And uh, I'm really happy he's here to finally talk about one of these personal favorite movies of mine, Frequency. So welcome back to the show, George Hands. Hello, Mario. Thank you. Uh, It's good to be back. It's been quite a while since uh, we did Johnny Dangerously. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, being in another uh, bottom five or ten episode uh, uh, downloaded episodes of yours. Yeah, what George is referring to is I often, uh, you may not follow me on Facebook, but I often post about which are the most downloaded episodes and the most popular episodes of Staff Picks, and they are never his. So I think you've gotten the pattern by now, George. Yeah, I kind of thought Johnny Dangerously was going to be one, but uh, nope, it it was downloaded once, once. One download for Johnny Daniels, yes. But, uh, no, George, I often pick four movies that I know are going to be a fun discussion just because I think if you guys know my past episodes, Johnny Dangerously is probably the most I've giggled through an episode ever where I think I ruined the, the audio. And it's all because you were doing that stupid parrot imitation. That <laughs> made me snort. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I promise not to do a, uh, a parrot impression uh, do it during this uh, uh, podcast. But I can't promise there won't be any impressions. And when I do, I bet you uh, uh, end up giggling like a madman again. <laughs> okay, so give people a little backstory on who you are, why you're here, and maybe your history with this movie. How do you even know about Frequency? Yeah, so, I, um, so I'm George. Uh, I, as Mario said, I've known him forever uh, since the MySpace days with, with Survivor. Um, and we've, we've kept in touch. He's, uh, I'm probably one of the few people that he has met in real life from the survivor community. And, uh, I was, uh, fortunate enough to show him, uh, uh, to the Daytona beach flea market. Uh, he, he came in through town and visited and, uh, we looked at, uh, churros and, uh, cheap, uh, pocket knives. So, yeah, I was going to say, just to clarify that a little bit. 
I'm a notorious hermit. I don't really meet people or interact with people in real life. I just kind of watch movies and stay here with my wife. But when I was in Florida for my job, I did stay at George's house for two nights. So he's one of the few people I've actually met in person. Yeah, and uh, and I and I do what uh, I do to all the people who who come to visit. I take them to the flea market. <laughs> yes, no, that's that's not true. Mario wanted to, um, which uh, you know, pretty sure that's where COVID started. <laughs> it's kind of a wet market in the, the Daytona Beach. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> the the Daytona Beach flea market. You'll never ha- find a bigger hive of. Uh, what the hell is the quote? Damn it, I screwed it up. Scum, scum and villainy. You'll never find a bigger hive of... Uh, no, fuck it. I don't care. Well, I'll keep that in. <laughs> okay, so how do you know frequency? Let's get back on topic here. Yeah, so uh, I'm pretty sure... Uh, uh, so uh, frequency came... Uh, when did it come out? 90... 2000. 2000. So uh, I saw frequency at the movie theater. Uh, I, that would have been right after college. Um, and, uh, it was just one of those movies, you know, oh, this looks good. Uh, I loved, uh, inner space. So I'm a big Dennis Quaid fan. So let's see what, uh, what this one's all about. Let's see him as a fireman. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a handful of movies that you think of uh, with father and son. Uh, obviously, you know, you've got uh, field of dreams. That's a big father and son movie. Uh, uh, for me, at, uh, at least Bronx tale, you know, you get a lot with Father and Son, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, yeah. um, and then my my favorite, like Father, like Son, the uh, ro- comedic romp with Kirk Cameron and Dudley Moore, where they switch <laughs> bodies. So they're all kind of the same uh, to me in terms of uh, you know father uh, son relationships. So wait, you put my father, like Father, like Son, over Field of Dreams? Is that a hot take? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to anger the Kirk Cameron fans, but I I don't believe that it's tr- traditionally known as a better movie than Field of Dreams. As a shorter man, uh, uh, I do have to, you know, give props to Dudley Moore and support his work. <laughs> okay, so to sum up this movie for people a little bit, it came out in 2000. It's about a father and son who are able to communicate over this amateur ham radio but they're communicating over 30 years. One's in 1999, one's in 1969, and the father is dead in 1999, so it's like a child communicating with his dead father he never knew. And I will say flat out, I'll just be honest here, I'm going to joke around a lot of this podcast, but my dad died when I was young, my mom died when I was young. This is a surprisingly emotional movie for me to get through, just the idea of talking to your parents back when they were your age. Now, your parents are still with us, so you will not quite have that take yet. Yeah, my my parents are still uh, around, although, you know, obviously they're they're getting up. They're both in age over 70. Uh, so, you know, I don't have the same experience, but um, I, I certainly can 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 relate. I have a uh, I have an audio cassette that uh, my dad recorded um, of us watching TV of the, the Miracle on Ice in 1980. And, you know, you hear my dad kick those Russians asses and you hear my sister go, we're number one. And then you hear little Georgie, we're number two. (laughs) Uh, So I know when my father passes, you know, there's going to be a day where I I open a drawer and see that tape and watch it. And, you know, uh, like uh, what uh, Buster Keaton and Scrooge said, Niagara Falls. So, yeah, so I can I, I. 
I don't, I'm not there yet, but I, I certainly uh, um, I can see where it would it would be so emotional. For the record, I don't believe that was Buster Keaton. I think that was Buster Poindexter. Uh, you know, Buster Keaton, Buster Poindexter, Buster Bluth, whatever. <laughs> I don't know if there are too many silent film stars from the 20s in Scrooged. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah, I don't know. You'd be surprised. I don't know what the, the follow-up to that is. Okay, well, yeah, to get get back to a little more seriousness here, like like you said, you have a tape of your father. One day it's going to be very emotional for you to listen to. I will admit, I don't I don't like talking about my personal life too much on these, this show, but I will say, my mom and I used to do karaoke together. We used to go and record our voices and sing together. And after she died, it was a really it was really tough for me to listen to those tapes. And you think you'd want that? You think that you'd you'd want to hear their voice like it's the last reminder of them? But I actually found it too painful that I actually had to throw away the tapes. I just couldn't listen to them. They were it was it was too much to hear someone's voice after they died. So. That's well, that's kind of the thing I'm coming at in this movie. Even though it's a, it's kind of a goofy movie, and there's some things we'll joke about. The plot holes are ridiculous in this movie, which I don't really care. But it is this is a really really touching parent-child movie. In fact, I really would probably rank it up there with Field of Dreams in terms of fathers and sons and baseball because, like, yeah, this is a movie that's going to hit people real hard. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure like the high notes that you hit when you were doing karaoke with your mom. Yes. I would do it all falsetto. We do, uh, I got you, babe. I do the share. She do sunny. Yes. Yes. Okay. So yeah, this movie is all over the place. It's about baseball. It's a serial killer movie. It's about fathers and sons. It's about New York. Uh, what, what else is it about? What else am I forgetting here? Uh, it's, it's about the Aurora Borealis. Yes. Science, the Aurora Borealis, uh, the space time continuum. There's a little back to the future in this movie. Yeah, there, uh, there definitely, uh, was a, a flux capacitor in that ham radio. <laughs> yes. And, and I should point out because I know George is going to lament this fact for the next two hours. This is a movie that celebrates the 1969 New York Mets, which is wonderful for George who you're not a Mets fan, are you? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. So I'm a Chicago Cubs fan, which um, if it wasn't for 2016, so the Cubs won a World Series in 2016 for the first time in, um, what was it, 116 years, 108 years? I think it was 300, 300 years. Yeah, it was uh, 108, 116. That's a number that should be on my head. But uh, um, yeah, but they've had... They had some heartache, not as much as the Red Sox had before they finally won, but 1969 was one of those heartaches. Um, the 69 Mets, everyone remembers the amazing Mets. They had never, they were in last place almost every year. And, uh, the Cubs had, I, 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 the Cubs had a huge lead in the division. And then just in September, they choked. Uh, uh most famously, uh, there was a game where, uh, Ron Santo, who was uh, the Cubs' uh, third baseman, was in the on-deck circle, and out of nowhere, out of the stands, a red, uh, um, a black cat comes out of nowhere and starts circling him. And it's it's an iconic image, and it just it just was so fitting. Obviously, the black cat wasn't what uh, doomed the Cubs, but um, they ended up choking down the stretch. They lost a I don't know a, a seven division a seven game lead. And ended up losing by seven games or 17 or just something ridiculous. So, um, you know, uh, the the plot of this movie uh, revolves around a lot around the 
the Mets and how um, the father and son relate about the Mets. And that's how they figure out that the, uh, uh, the son is from the future because he knows what happens in that Mets World Series. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it. And if if the 2016 World Series hadn't happened and I was, you know, living this, uh, if my father had passed away and we were talking over uh, 30 years over the radio, uh, and I had to talk about the 1969 season and, you know, tell him what was going to happen ahead of time. Uh, uh, this movie would have been the plot would have been a, a, a bunch different instead of saving his life. I think he would have took his own life and took my mother in a murder suicide. And I probably wouldn't end up uh, being born. Yeah, that's an entirely different movie. The <laughs> George telling his father about the 69 Cubs and then his father puts a shotgun in his mouth. That's not quite the same movie. No, no. Thankfully, the, the shotgun in this movie is, is used for, for, for much better uh, plot reasons. Yeah, and it, it's funny because George only pointed this out before we started this podcast, that there is no bigger movie that's ever been a bigger celebration of the New York Mets than this movie, Frequency. Like, it's practically masturbatory about how much you must love the Mets to like this movie. And I happen to pick someone who hates the Mets with a passion and is a Cubs fan. So I'm glad you pointed out the irony to me before we started. Well, hates hates is probably a little hard uh, hardcore. I don't hate the Mets like I like I would the the Cardinals or or, or some other uh, you know Cubs rivals. But um, again, 2016 when you finally win a World Series, it it, it you know it it, it 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 took away the pain and uh, you know hey let everyone have their World Series. The Mets they've been long suffering for a while, long suffering since 1986. Ah, they can have one now too. I forgive you. Yeah, and I should point out that I'm a Seattle Mariners fan, so I don't have anything to say about anything because we're terrible always. Doesn't matter. Yeah, that would be your uh, your rendition of the 2001 season. Uh, your rendition of frequency would be the 2001 Mariners season, where they have the best, most wins ever on a team, and then they uh, they do their own choke job. You know, I'm gonna cut that right out of the episode. There's no way I'll ever include that, right? <laughs> Okay, so just to clarify, George does not hate New York, even though I said he did. But you were cheering on 9-11, correct? <laughs> uh, um, yes, like uh, like Donald Trump said, I was on a, a rooftop uh, cheering uh, when, the, when the towers were going down. He... Okay, just wanted to get that on tape for, uh, for future purposes so I can get you fired from a job. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay, so anyway, yeah, really good movie from 2000. In fact, uh... I want to give a little plug here. I just started a Letterboxd account. I never was on that website ever. I just want to let people know. Go to letterboxd.com slash Mario Lanza. You can see my reviews. I try to review every movie I've talked about on Staff Picks. Frequency is one of those. I will give a five-star rating automatically. There's no way I wouldn't because I, I love this movie so much. And again, it's really kind of unknown these days. Is that a, Have you found that experience as well? Well, you know, Yes, nobody knows it. However, um, I'm not even sure if you know this, but five years ago, they tried to remake this as a TV series. I did hear that, but I never saw it. No, well, nobody did because uh, that's why it was only on the air. And of course, it was on the CW. But they, uh, as they often do when they remake a show, they they change, uh, you know, the the uh, nationality or the gender. Uh, in this case, it was the gender of the star. So instead of uh, uh, Jim Caviezel as the main character. They they had a woman who was the the daughter of the fireman. Um, it was an actress named Peyton List who was in uh, Mad Men. And I had the only time I had seen that name in Mario. You you. <laughs> I know where you're know going. Me? I know where you're going. Yes. Yeah. So I, I saw that 
I was like, this movie was 2016, and I was trying to put the math together because the only Peyton list I had heard of, she is one of the stars, uh, young young stars of Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to figure out how she could have been in a movie five years ago as like an adult uh, cop, and, and yeah, it blew my mind. So apparently there are two actresses uh, in Hollywood uh, named Peyton List. Wow, I had no idea. I just assumed she was like 40, and she looks like she's 15. I don't know that I can address anything in that statement. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is going to be a tough one to get through. Okay. Here we go. So yeah. Frequency, this 2000 movie. And it's funny. I've all, I often say, uh, I think I've mentioned it on staff picks before my all time favorite year for movies is 1999. Cause like every movie that came out the year was amazing. Like there's literally like 25 movies from that year. I think are really good. And in this movie, I always want to include in 1999, but it's not. It's actually 2000. So I will honorarily put it in 99 in the 99 movies because I think it's that good. But yeah, it's just a this hidden little gem that I think is so fun, and there's so many cool moments in it, and it's like exciting and tense and sad and funny and heroic. Like it's just all over the place. Although I did read a little trivia about this, George. I don't know if you knew this. Do you know when they wrote this movie who they wanted to star in it instead of Dennis Quaid? Uh, well, uh, you gotta tell me, chief. (laughs) Oh, so I see you've read it. Yes. (laughs) Sylvester Stallone. This movie was written for Sylvester Stallone. Uh, I could see it. I mean, he did play some dramatic things like Copland. He was good in Copland as a slow cop. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely think he would have been great in this. I'm just shocked he passed on it. Like, Stallone has forever wanted people to take him seriously as a dramatic actor. And he's crossed over a couple times. And this movie was so perfect for him. I could totally see it. And I, I read he turned it down because of uh, money reasons. They didn't pay him enough. But, like, I, I really wish he would have been in this. As much as I love Dennis Quaid, I would have loved to see Stallone in this movie. Yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to think. I, I got nothing to say to that. <laughs> All right, good. Hey, he's not the best color man in the league for nothing. Exactly. <laughs> but, okay, going back to Dennis Quaid. It's it's another thing I think I've talked on staff picks about as well. I think we just mentioned it in the Dreamscape episode, which will be released before this one. But damn, Dennis Quaid has done a lot of great movies over the years. Like, I don't think he ever gets enough credit for that. No, uh, you know, speaking of all the baseball that's in the movie, I think The Rookie is an outstanding movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be a staff pick at some point because I don't hear many people talking about it in terms of the, uh, you know, all-time best uh, uh, sports movies. But – I love the, the the rookie. Yeah, I love just about any movie he has ever been in, and the rookie is one I have definitely considered for staff picks because, for people who maybe not know the history, Dennis Quaid, really big star in the '80s, really charismatic, likable, super charming. Just I love this guy, and then he kind of disappeared for a while, and I don't know why. And then like everything, every movie he made after he made after that was like his big comeback, like Frequency, The Rookie. There's a couple others in there I kind of forget, but like. I don't know why he needed a comeback. He was never bad. You know, he – and I, I don't know this if this is the answer, but he did have uh, you know the long marriage with Meg Ryan mm-hmm. and you know perhaps there was uh, there was something with that with them, you know, dirty laundry going out there or whatever. But uh, um, no, he's – he to me is, is, is just – you know, he's got that the, – the, the Hollywood idol, good looks – you know, but a guy wants to, you know, have a beer, uh, you know, 
uh, throw a football with him or whatever. So he's he's likable to both men and women. Very good. Yes, that you can address that, just not the 15 year old Peyton List comment. Again, I revert to my previous statements, Your Honor. All right, I'm glad your lawyer is present with you for this podcast. <laughs> okay, so one other thing I want to talk about this movie. It's it's such an irresistible plot device to me. And it's it's funny because I've read some reviews of this movie that pl- call the plot contrived or predictable. Like, I don't necessarily think it's contrived or predictable. I would fully admit there's plot holes. Anytime you deal with the space-time continuum and you start changing the past and it affects history, naturally there's going to be plot holes. So I can overlook a lot of those, but the the fact that people say this plot is contrived, I don't care. I don't give a shit that it's contrived because I think it's so irresistible to uh, for a person in one era to talk to a person in another. In fact, you may not know this. This is I'm really going to pull something obscure out of my butt here. But this movie reminds me of my all-time favorite Twilight Zone episode. Now, are you a Twilight Zone fan? No, I, uh, I I am a chicken, and I don't watch scary things, so you'll never have me on one of your horror movie ones. But you have inspired me to watch a few horror movies. We've we've discussed that. Well, uh, the interview. Oh, the uh, invitation. Invitation. I watched the invitation. Not really a horror movie, a, a thriller, and I loved it. So, uh, no, not a Twilight Zone fan. Okay, I I will just clarify that a little by saying I love recommending horror movies to people who don't like horror movies. I specifically search for stuff that's not slashery or bloody or torturey or jump scary. So the invitation is right up my alley. I love movies like that. Okay, so anyway, the Twilight Zone, there's the original Twilight Zone back in the, what, 50s, 60s, I forget. And then they remade it in the 80s called the New Twilight Zone. And my all-time favorite Twilight Zone episode is actually in the 80s. It's a remake. It's a, the modern Twilight Zone. And it's called – I will give you a recommendation for anybody who wants to go track this down, this down. It's called A Message from Charity. And it came out in 1985. And it's about a boy who gets some kind of fever, scarlet fever or something in 1980. And he somehow telepathically connects with a girl back in the Puritan era who also has scarlet fever. And they can start to talk to each other through their thoughts. And it's such a neat little premise of people learning about each other's eras through this thought process. And this movie is an, it's not an exact ripoff of that, but it's the same premise. So I just want to throw that out to people. Go watch A Message from Charity. And I will even tell George it's not scary in the slightest. It's actually more touching than scary, that episode. I mean, technically, we are talking to people in the future, and we might be able to change their future by the words we have. So, uh-oh. Eh. <laughs> I'm not sure we're the two that you want changing the future for people. Uh, if you're listening, John and Marlene, don't get married. <laughs> All right. So with that, are you ready to delve into this? Uh, I don't even know. I guess this is a sci-fi movie, but it's it's really it's funny. It's more of a like a serial killer movie than anything. But are you ready to dive into this one? Spirit and guts. I'm ready. All right, little chief. Let's go. All right, so uh, this movie takes place in two different time periods, and it's really well done because they tend to intercut between the two eras. You have 1969 and you have 1999, and a lot of the times the scenes will be going on simultaneously in both eras. So I, hopefully we can do that justice. You think we, we, we have that kind of ability, George? Yes, no, absolutely. Um, we, uh, let's see. Yes, Mario. <laughs> wow. 
Okay, well, I'll give you the honor. So we'll start in 1969. 1969 is the story of a firefighter named Frank Sullivan, played by Dennis Quaid. And kind of explain his life to people, because he's really the main star of this movie. Frank Sullivan uh, is a fireman. He is uh, 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 called to uh, this fire. We, we see him uh, starting off right away on the truck, heading to a fire. And, uh, uh, you know, right off the bat, one of the first lines of dialogue is about the World Series. So we're getting the Mets in there already. And uh, this first uh, call that they're, they're going to is uh, a, a fire... Uh, at uh, what is it a bank because there's a big vault it was at a bank I just know it's mostly underground it's in the tunnels under something yeah there's some sort of vault uh, that they they have to bust open and they tell them of course just like every fire fire movie you know don't go in there it's too dangerous but uh, Frank has to go back there because there's people still to get he gets into this room and there's uh, the most uh, uh, terribly special effect a wire that's uh, electric and uh, getting close to the the water and is going to electrocute these people. But uh, Frank goes in there and uh, gets the guy and saves him. And uh, just as they're coming out of the manhole, uh, just like every action movie from uh, the 80s or the 90s, it blows up just as they get out there and there's big flames and a tanker truck blows up. And we find uh, we, we got the hero shot already of, uh, of Dennis Quaid uh, is Frank. Yeah, Frank Sullivan is a tough, no-nonsense New York City firefighter. He's got a wife named Julia, got a little boy named John. Just a man's man, smokes, talks like a guy, real thick New York accent. Uh, anything I'm leaving out about Frank? He rides a motorcycle. Yeah, he's, a, he's just a, a man's man. Yeah, and they, uh, you know, to hammer it home, if you didn't get that he was a fireman, they play uh, the old ditty, here's a heat wave. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so... Frank is the star of our movie, and he's very brave. Again, New York firefighters historically, I mean, firefighters in general, I don't know why they have to be New York, but New York firefighters, very known for being brave, perhaps a little daring and reckless, which is going to be a big plot point in this movie. He takes risks that he probably shouldn't, and uh, he is the hero of our movie. Although, we really have to talk about the year here, this 1969 World Series, because I don't think non-baseball fans would understand the significance of that year in New York. So uh, I'll give this. Uh, I'll I'll turn this over to you. Why is that such a big year for someone in Queens, New York? Uh, 1969. That would be the uh, the Son of Sam year, right? No, we're talking about the Amazing Match, your favorite team of all time. You said. Oh, oops. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, so the Mets. Uh, yes, as uh, as I said earlier, the Mets uh, were perennial doormats. Uh, always finished last, or I think maybe second to last one year. They were terrible, but this year, I think it was their eighth or ninth year in existence, uh, uh, they're in, they catch fire at the end of the season. They end up winning uh, something like uh, – like, uh, uh, <laughs> I have no idea, honestly. I'm letting you go for this one. <laughs> I don't know the Mets. So the Mets win 38 of their last 49 games. Uh, this was the first year that they had uh, divisions. Uh, divisional era so instead before that it was uh just the top team in each league made the world series well this they actually had divisional series and they were the first expansion team to win a division and the pennant and then eventually the world series so all in new york you know new york was always a yankees town and then uh they they had the giants who moved away and the dodgers who moved away so and then the mets came along and they were you know they were only in existence for that long but uh and they were always terrible 
So, but this year, uh, as I said, the Cubs choked more than the Mets. Now, the Cubs choked more than the Mets won it, but no, the Mets deserved it. Uh, they they blew by everybody, and they kept uh, they kept on going in the World Series, and they they make uh, they make the World Series uh, against the Baltimore Orioles. Okay, yeah, just I'm just gonna summarize this a little for non-baseball fans. This is a big deal. Like baseball fans, George and I are baseball fans. We know the 69 Mets off the top of our head. That's like one of the most famous things in baseball lore, this Mets team coming out of nowhere to win the World Series, win the hearts of the fans. Absolutely beloved in New York still to this day. Mets fans still love the 69 Mets. So it's really significant that this movie is set in 1969 in New York. In fact, the day that uh, Dennis Quaid you know, gets everybody out of the fire on the very first scene of the movie we are told is the day before the 1969 World Series. So this is really significant to the story. And with that, so he comes home after his first day as being a hero for his, his big day of being a hero firefighter. And he comes home and he fires up his one hobby in the world. And this is the one thing that's really significant to the movie, that Frank has a hobby that is kind of nerdy at the time. But, of course, it's what our story is based around. And what is that hobby, George? Ham radios. <laughs> Now, have you ever personally used or even seen a ham radio? I've never used one, and I but I do want to say my my father may have had one. No, I take that back. My dad had a CB radio in the in the van, mm-hmm. and he would he would use the CB radio sometime when we were traveling to give a give us kids a kick. Uh, you know, we'd be driving down the interstate and he'd get on there and, you know, breaker, breaker and some <laughs> truck driver would get on and it always make us laugh. Uh, OK, well, OK, let's clarify this a little because, again, for my younger listeners, this is a historical relic that's even older than George and me. And we're both <laughs> older than most of my listeners. Explain to people what a CB radio is and then what a ham radio is and what the difference is. So CB radios were in your car, and there was a couple of channels, and they were normally used by truck drivers or emergency vehicles, police. Uh, but for for common people, it was it was truck drivers who would use to communicate with each other to let people know that there was a traffic or let each other know there was traffic or a smoky that was uh, uh, had a radar uh, out there. But normal people could get them as well and uh, and talk to each other, talk to truck drivers to make their kids giggle like my dad did. <laughs> Um, ham radios, even dorkier. Uh, you know, I can't tell you really about the technology of it, but you, uh, as we find out in the movie, uh, you have to have a, a license to have a ham radio and, um, not sure how the technology works. You probably need the Aurora Borealis to use them anyway, <laughs> but the, the, the waves go out there, bounce all around and you're, you're able to talk to other people that have, have ham radios, you know, potentially, uh, uh on the other side of the, the world. Um, it is just other enthusiasts who are into this uh, thing. So basically, maybe the uh, the chat roulette of the pre-internet era. <laughs> yes, that is such a perfect comparison. That's exactly. I was trying to think of a modern comparison. A ham radio is really your you are your own radio station. That anybody could be a radio station. You could send out your waves anywhere in the world, or I guess within a twenty-mile radius. I don't know exactly how it worked. And other people would get on, and you could talk to each other. And I, I love that you called that that dorky. As here we are doing a podcast where we're doing the exact same thing. Well, it's your podcast, dork. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So a ham radio is a thing they would have had back in the I don't know maybe 50s, 60s, 70s. I honestly don't know. I've never personally seen one. Seen one. But yeah, people would have these and they'd broadcast. And they'd have call letters 
and they just get on there. And that's what Dennis Quaid does at the start of the movie. Just gets on and starts talking to random people. And what's significant about this movie is we'll see it all throughout the movie. There's like a weird Aurora Borealis, the Northern lights going over New York, which very rarely ever comes down that South. It's kind of a natural phenomenon. And because of this, he's going to somehow communicate with someone in the future. And with that, we're going to jump ahead to 1999 and we're going to meet his son, Johnny, who we saw earlier in the movie. Now he's John Sullivan and he is a police officer. So let's talk about John a little bit. So John is, uh, I mean, to me, kind of a quintessential movie cop. He's uh, uh, drinks a lot. He's got a girlfriend that's got problems because uh, problems with him because, uh, you know, he won't change. He's tied to the job. Uh, you know he's he's pretty much a stereotype of a of a of a police officer in a movie. Yeah, and his girlfriend dumps him at the start because he's emotionally unavailable. He just does. He has kind of a sad life. That's why we're kind of led to believe about John. Well, that could happen when your die, dad dies thirty years ago in a fire. Yeah. Okay. So we learn a lot of backstory here, and I'm going to kind of set it up. So John is home all by himself, and I think you mentioned earlier played by Jim Caviezel. Is that how you pronounce his name? I have no idea. <laughs> All right. We're going to go with that. And he is uh, John Sullivan, and he's got a buddy next door named Gordo, and Gordo comes over with his kid, played by... Now, I always forget that he's in this movie, Michael Sarah. Yeah, Michael Sarah plays uh, plays the, the kid, and he's sitting there, of course, playing uh, uh, PlayStation or, or uh, Xbox or whatever the heck it is, playing the Mets. And I, I rewound it a lot. I'm pretty sure it's John Olerud that it's at the bat when we first meet Michael Sarah. Wow, future Mets. So there you go. Or I guess he was at, on the Mets at the time. But yeah. Yeah, he was on the Mets at the time. But yeah, this is Michael Sarah from Arrested Development and Super Bad and other things. Very young. You almost don't recognize him. I'm like, I swear, every single time I watch this movie, it takes me a minute to say, hey, is that Michael Sarah? And then I always forget. Yes, and we also uh, we we meet uh, Gordo, uh, uh, J- uh, John's best friend, who uh, is, is reading through the newspaper and laments that uh, Yahoo lost another five points today, or went up another five points today, and says woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yeah, Gordo is a uh, stock investor who never bought into Yahoo, which is the big stock at the time. Kind of a time capsule of 2000. Just remember that that no one's talking about Google stock yet. We're talking about Yahoo. So anyway, yeah, the big setup here is these uh, Gordo and his son come over to talk to John, and and uh, I forget what happens, but the little boy, Michael Sarah, says, hey, can I look through your uh, closet for something to play with? John's like, yeah, and he digs out Frank Sullivan's old ham radio, and this is where we learn, this is where we learn the backstory, right, of all this, of what happened to Frank when he was younger? Yeah, uh, John finds the chest. He's like, oh, yeah, that was my my dad's old stuff. And he opens it up. And the first thing he takes out is a shotgun and hands it to the kid to go have a good time. uh, But there is a shotgun in there. uh, But then, uh, yeah, that's where we learn all what happens. It's uh, the old ham radio, but there's all sorts of uh, newspaper clippings and photos. um, But they want to play. The the kid wants to play with a ham radio because – uh, even though you'd be bored in uh, uh, 10 seconds as a kid nowadays with a ham radio, it's a new shiny thing and he wants to see it. Yeah, and to be fair, George Michael Bluth is kind of a dork. Yes, yes, he... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so yeah, this is where we learn the backstory that Frank Sullivan at the start of the movie in 1969, big hero, firefighter, had a perfect family, perfect life. 
He dies the day after that first scene. He dies on October 10th, 1969 in a warehouse fire. And we learn all this in this scene that John is growing up without a father, never really knew his dad. He was like six when his dad died. So it's left a huge gaping hole in his life growing up without a father. And seeing this ham radio kind of reminds him of it because as we learned, the kids were never allowed to touch Frank's beloved ham radio when they were when they were in the house because, as Frank would say, this is not a toy. Yeah, the accent. You, you said it was sounded good earlier, but it, to me, it was it was not a good accent. It sounded like some combination of like Peter Griffin with the the super fans uh, SNL uh, Bears guys. Uh, stop Bears! Stop Bears! Stop Bears! It, it, I don't think it was a good New York accent, but apparently, I hate New York, uh, as Mario says. He, it sounds like he got really Italian for that one sentence. During the day, you could chew the band with China. <laughs> yeah, so they pull out the ham radio, and John kind of explains. Again, it's set up so he can just explain it to Michael Sarah what this ham radio is. He's like, oh, they used to have these back in the day. You could talk to anybody. You could talk to China. It was great. And the kid's like, oh, sweet. Can I use it? And and I, I they're, they're starting to set it up. They want to play around with a ham radio, but the kid gets called. I think... He has to go work in the banana stand or something. I think he has to leave. Well, that's that's where the money's kept. <laughs> yeah, so so John is basically left home all alone with his ham radio, his dad's old ham radio from 30 years ago that he pulled out of storage. And this is where we get the uh, first really sci-fi-y interesting scene of this movie where John fires up the ham radio and a strange voice comes out of it that he wasn't expecting. Yeah, he, uh, he starts talking to... Uh, uh... This voice of uh, this guy who says, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm from Queens. And uh, they, they start talking. He says, oh, you must be an old timer if uh, you're still using these things. Oh, you're from Queens, too. You're, you're psyched for the series. And Johnny says, I don't follow baseball anymore. I got, you know, so they're 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 dancing around the, the fact that, you know, they're not realizing they're 30 years apart. Yeah, so John announces he's not really into baseball. Frank's like, what are you talking about? Everyone loves baseball. We love the Mets. He goes, you know, in 100 years, that's what they're going to talk about when they talk about America. It's going to be the Constitution, rock and roll, and baseball. And I think my accent's even worse than his, actually. Yeah, that, that wasn't good. That, that, that sounded more like uh, uh, Virginia or something. I don't know. I'm trying to do John Travolta in uh, Saturday Night Fever. So that, that's, that's my only frame of reference for New Yorkers. Anyway, so yeah, father and son don't realize who the other person is. They just realize, they just think they're talking to some other random guy from Queens. And uh, and Frank is confused, all right? Because this is where John starts saying, oh yeah, the uh, the Amazing Mets in the World Series, blah, blah. He starts talking about it as if it's happened in the past. And Frank's like, what do you mean? That's tomorrow. The World Series is tomorrow. So they haven't quite grasped what's going on. They're a little confused by this conversation. Yeah, a absolutely. And, um, uh, the the wife comes in to to course interrupt it before they really realize uh, what's going on and uh, and this is when you you first see Frank's face you you kind of know it's him but you actually see uh, that it's Frank talking to the son this whole time uh, and the 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 dog comes in the room and uh, Quaid kind of kicks the dog and it cracks uh, the glass and then in the future. Uh, with uh, Caviezel standing there, you see the glass change on the door that's right there uh, by the ham radio. So this is the first little glimpse we get 
of things in the past changing things in the future. Yeah, I like that little reveal. I like the way they do that. For people who have never seen it, 1969, Dennis Quaid bumps a little glass, and they're in the same house, just 30 years apart. And when Dennis Quaid bumps the glass, the crack appears in the 1999 version instantaneously. And they're going to use that to great effect later in the movie where Frank will be able to pass messages and later things to his son through 30 years, which is really kind of interesting. Yeah, and they use the the Back to the Future uh, picture that you keep looking at a picture and things changing, which in this movie, they showed the picture a lot. And half the time I couldn't figure out what changed. It was like uh, those puzzles where you, uh, you know, find the five differences between the two pictures. And I'm going, is the mom missing? Who is it? The dad? Who's missing in the picture? Yeah, there's there's one reveal, especially right towards the end of the movie where something dramatic happens and you think the future is going to change, but it doesn't. And John looks at the picture and we only get a split second and we're supposed to immediately see what the difference is. And I'm like, what the hell changed? And they cut away before you can tell. It's like real. It made me laugh. Okay, so, yeah, so we have this little brief interaction between Frank and his son, his future son, his current son, whatever, just 30 years apart through. Now, I guess we have to kind of dance around the science in this a little bit because they they really do try to explain it in the movie how people can talk over 30 years of time. <laughs> now, how, how, how much do you want to delve into this? Yeah, well, there is some some science in the, the Brian Green is the guy who's talking on TV about the Roar Borealis and parallel universes and whatever. So there is some science, whatever to it. I've heard the whole Einstein time travel, uh, uh, you know, the difference between if you're on the train or at the station. I don't know. I don't get it. And I don't care. It touches my heart when I watch the movie and I think about my dad. So I think we can skip through all this. Yeah, okay. The, the only thing I want to say is there's mention in the movie of how time can be folded on top of each other. It's like quantum time or quantum physics or something. I'm not nearly enough to nearly smart enough to understand any of this, but they do in the in the movie attempt to have little people on the news talking in the background about the Aurora Borealis. So they do try to explain how time can kind of fold on itself. And like George said, we're going to skip right over that because I don't even want to bother getting into it. Yeah, all the, you know, paradoxes that you see in all the different the different movies, you know, at least uh, as opposed to Back to the Future, at least there's there's no scene where you, your mom comes on to you in this one. <laughs> well, my favorite is the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure when they just say, hey, we'll go in the future and do this and then it'll happen. So <laughs> at least this movie doesn't go that far. I mean, it basically does with the wallet. <laughs> all right. All right. I will get to that. OK, so, yeah, uh, just we're just kind of teasing you in case you haven't seen this movie. We're going to change a lot of the future through this movie and like in a good way and a bad way. Then they have to correct something. You screwed up. You killed people. There's a lot of future space time continuum goofiness going on here. So we'll, we'll get into that in a second. OK, so we're in 1969. It's the day of the game one. It's the day of game one of the 1969 World Series. Frank pulls out the old TV. It's a huge block party. Everybody in Queens gathers to watch the game and we see you know, Frank, his neighbors, little Gordo, little John, his wife, and then his buddy Satch, who's going to become very important to this plot. So I'll, I'll let you talk about Satch here. So Satch is Andre Brar, which uh, is uh, an actor who's been around for a long time. Uh, at least I know, and I think a lot of people would know him as uh, Chief Holt from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So it's uh, interesting to see him in this role, but he plays Satch, which the first – when I heard it in the movie, I said, Satch, are we going to 
get a reason why he's called Satch. Is he just is his last name Satcharelli? Uh, but no, we have no idea. So the only Satches I've ever heard in my life are Satchel Page and uh, Louis Armstrong, who was called Satchmo or Satch. So we have we never find out in the movie why he's Satch, and that disappointed me. So maybe I need to go back in time to when he got that nickname to find out what it was. Of course, then I'd probably change his nickname. A picture of him would change. He'd never be in Brooklyn Nine Nine. I don't know. Yeah, that is the message we that really comes across from this movie. Don't fuck shit up, really. Yeah, you think you fix things, but you know, three other things go go wrong. Okay, so uh, let's see. I'm trying to, to debate how we want to talk about this plot because it's going to get really convoluted and complex real quick here. Let's talk about 1999, the future. Future John, the cop. He's in the middle of a uh, serial killer investigation, and this is important to the plot. You don't realize this is actually the main plot of the movie until later. You think it's about the father and son, but it's really going to become about stopping a serial killer. But they def in 1999, they discover some bones of this girl who turns out to be a victim of a serial killer from the 60s who is known as the Nightingale Killer. And they don't know that yet. They just realize these are some old bones they dug up. It's a case from the late 60s. File that away from now. We'll come back to that later. Is that, I think, appropriate to say? Yeah, n not the Nightingale Killer, not to be confused with the Night Owl Killer, which I was saying in my notes uh, quite a bit. I was getting it confused with L.A. Confidential. <laughs> okay. Thank you for bringing that up. So I'm sure that won't confuse anybody. So good job. <laughs> okay, so now we go to the back in the 90s that John goes to visit his mom. And again, this is uh, she's played by Elizabeth Mitchell. You may know her from lost some other stuff i forget exactly but she's really good in this and we learn more about how john just grew up with a mom never had a dad and she kind of explains you know your dad was a big baseball fan just a kid that never grew up he would have loved you so much and we learn that tomorrow october 10th 1999 is the 30 year anniversary of the father's death and i think this is where we really learn the details of the death right how he died in a warehouse fire yeah, you know, this is probably the first little, uh, you know, chill moment, you know, father-son thing where you, you really catch the gravity of, hey, this is a kid who hasn't had his father for, for so long. Um, you know, he's just, he, you know, he wishes he could remember him better, and he's looking up at those northern lights. And then, of course, uh, now it, it, it cuts, you know, back to uh, uh, getting back to the ham radio, our, our, our device that, that gets the two together all this time. Yeah, this is a really beautiful scene. There's a couple really, I mean, some of the most beautiful scenes of any movies I've ever covered on Staff Picks. The second conversation between John and his dead father over the radio. And to set this one up, there's a lot going on. I have like four pages of notes just on this scene alone. If I recall, in their first conversation, John said, oh yeah, the Mets are going to win game one of the World Series, blah, blah, blah. And Frank kind of blew it off. But now game one has happened, and everything that John said happened did happen and so now they meet up on the radio again and now frank is starting to believe this guy actually might be a little something special like how did you know what was going to happen in the world series and i think this is where they actually start realizing who who they're talking to yeah he uh he's how'd you call buford's home run and uh you know that's when he says you know the game happened 30 years ago yeah right 30 years ago so i suppose you could tell me what uh happened in game two which reminded me of back to the future and who was the president? You know, Ronald Reagan, the actor. It was kind of the same feel to me. But yeah, oh yeah, game two, top of the ninth, Al Weiss, game-winning RBI single, Brooks Robinson grounds out to the end of the game. And then you hear a small little voice, Daddy, come up and sing the baseball song. And 
uh, Dennis Quaid, hey, little chief, I'll be there in a minute. So he, he ends up hearing his own voice 30 years in the past. Yeah, that is a that I believe they, as you said earlier, that is a chill moment. You kind of get chills down your spine when John realizes he's talking to his dead father and he hears his dead father talking to six year old him. Like that is a wonderfully creepy slash beautiful moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's really where, uh, uh, he said, you know, what you call your son, little chief. And, uh, you said your name was Frank, you know, Frank Sullivan is, you know, and then there, you know, then Dennis Quaid as as a, as a father and the kid involved, he gets defensive, you know, it's just some kind of, you know, a, a joke, stay away from my kid. You know, they, 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 you live at this address. It's, um, it, it, it gets really, it gets really heated between the two. Yeah. Although th- there's one little detail I think we're forgetting that what eventually proves to each other that they are, who are, who, who they say they are is Frank announces what his call letters are. And John looks down and sees those exact call letters on the radio. And this is like the old oh shit moment. I, I am talking to my dead father. And like you said, Dennis Quaid, does not buy it at all. He is furious. Like, how do you know my son's name is John? I'll kill you. Oh, you come near my house. I'll kick your ass. Like he's furious. And so at the start, Dennis Quaid's very defensive. Yeah. And he, he, he gets so upset. He, he knocks the, he, he's always smoking in the movie and he tries to put the cigarette in the ashtray and he misses and it hits uh, glue and it catches fire. And it, you know, he starts putting it out on the desk. And then in the future you see on Caviezel's desk, the, the stain, the, 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 the burnt desk stain. And he says, I can see the burnt stain on the desk. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that moment. You see it in real time. The stain appears in 1999 because, again, in, if we're uh, just accepting that you can change things in instantaneously in the space-time continuum, that's how it's going to work. So, of course, he uh, Caviezel, Jim, realizes, oh, my God, this is my dad. I have to save his life. I have the uh, opportunity to save the past. And he says, October 12th, 1969, tomorrow, you're going to die. Yeah, this is a big plot device. Again, there's a couple huge plot twists in this movie, but this is the one that this movie based is based around that John realizes my dad dies tomorrow. And the day that I'm talking to him in, in 1969, tomorrow is the date of his death. And he basically lays out the entire accident and how his dad died in real life and how his dad could have avoided it. So he, he tells his dad, even though Dennis Quaid still thinks this guy's a crank, John says, no, no, you have to understand, you're going to run the wrong way. You're going to run, you're going to go with your instinct. You're going to run out away from the fire. It's going to blow up, collapse. You're going to die tomorrow. Go against your instinct. And even though Dennis Quaid doesn't believe him, he hears that. So yeah, Quaid doesn't believe him, but the next day, the next scene, He's at the fire station. He's watching the baseball game. You can tell he's thinking. He's thinking about what the guy, Crank, uh, the weirdo on the radio was talking about with the baseball. And all of a sudden, sirens go off. It's a call. It's a warehouse fire, just like the dude on the radio said it was going to be. Yeah, everything John has said from 1999 is coming true. And you can see Frank getting a little rattled because the World Series is playing out exactly like John said it would. Here's the warehouse fire. It's all happening exactly like John said it would. And the other firefighters are even, they see it on Dennis Quaid's face in 1969. They're going to the fire. They can see he's a little nervous. They're like, are you okay? And Dennis Quaid, you can see it going through his head. I may die today. This He may actually be telling the truth. Yeah, and he sees the name of the, the, the warehouse, Buxton Seeds. 
because it was the Buxton fire. <laughs> yeah, okay, so this fire scene is one of the big set pieces in the movie. And <laughs> I have a little bit of trivia here that's kind of funny, but uh, yeah, it's a really harrowing scene where Dennis Quaid has to run in this big burning building. There's a teenage runaway up on the top floor that's been squatting there. He has to run in there and rescue her. And he gets separated from his pack, right? He's all by himself because the stair collapses behind him. Yep. Yeah, and so so how does he escape? Kind of explain that to people. <laughs> he escapes and, and one of the, <laughs> it makes me chuckle because uh, I still am not 100% and hopefully you know, but he he has no way out. The, the ladder won't go or the, the gearbox on the ladder gets jammed so they can't get the ladder, ladder up there. So he's thinking, he's thinking, and out of the blue – is this little windy, like Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, a uh, windy slide that uh, is in the middle of this warehouse that shoots him out into the water. Yeah, I don't really get the logistics behind that. I'm guessing that's somewhat historically accurate. But yeah, he just sits down and slides. His, okay, so his instinct is to run out this door that has no flame. That's what he would have done in 69, and he would have died because everything would have blown up. Instead, he runs right into the fire, down this goofy peewee herman slide i don't have no idea why it's there although it does make sense it's the buxton warehouse because francis buxton is the one that stole peewee's bike if you remember <laughs> nice so maybe it's a very yeah maybe very subtle peewee's big adventure reference you know now that i think about it i bet they make seeds they probably put the seeds in big uh, uh bundles or something and they probably roll the seeds down this thing it went out to the water. There's probably a boat out there that the seeds go into. Yep, that's where Amazing Larry picks them up. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope somebody got that. Okay, so <laughs> so yeah, so Dennis Quaid escapes. He was supposed to die in this fire. He slides down this little grain slide or whatever and gets out. And all of a sudden, it's like this huge moment that he has changed history. Dennis Quaid was supposed to die in this fire. He doesn't. And all of a sudden, in 1999, we get this really trippy scene of all these new memories flooding into John's head that weren't there before. Then you see it in his eyes. It's like you see it in his pupils as his eyes start dilating and acting all goofy. And like all of a sudden, now he has two memories, one of his life when his dad died and one where his dad survived. Yeah, he's out at uh, the bar with uh, his, his coworkers, his friends, celebrating uh, the, the, the life of his dad who died 30 years ago. And this happens in the past, and yeah, everything changes in his heads at once. It's like he's living two lives at once, and and all of a sudden he says, my dad didn't die in a fire, right? And uh, I think it was Satch, what are you talking about, Johnny? He had cancer because of the cigarettes. Yeah, about about 10 years ago, about 19, 1990, your dad died. So all of a sudden, John has an entire new backstory and all these new memories. Yeah, everybody else is none the wiser. Only John has these these conflicting memories in his head now. Okay, I do. I, I have to say a little trivia that I read about that fire scene that I just found amusing. That the plot device requires that Dennis Quaid pulls off his fireman's helmet and throws it out a window because he has to break the window. And then he slides down the slide to get out. He has to get some air in the room, so he breaks the window. Whee! Uh, yeah. Apparently in real life, Dennis Quaid hurt his head because he bashed it into a a board on the way down that slide. Ironically enough, had he been wearing his helmet, he would not have injured himself. So the plot required him to throw his helmet away. They did not have a second one for him, and that's how he hurt himself. So good job, Safety Patrol, on the movie Frequency. Well, 
Safer than an Alec Baldwin movie. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you were going to go for the Alec Baldwin joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you're calling me a hack. <laughs> yeah, so uh, in 1969, Dennis Quaid survives, and he's like, run, falls down in the water, and he saved this teenage girl, and he gets up, and he's just like flabbergasted. He's like, oh my god, everything that kid told, or every everything that guy told me on the radio was true. That actually was my son. And he's like, you did it, little chief. You did it. And so now we're going to get really, I mean, I can't get through this next scene without crying, to be honest. Now we get the scene where they go home and Dennis Quaid talks to his son for the first time. And they really understand who they're talking to. And they basically just go over the entire history of their lives and share it with each other. Yeah, you know, you, you skipped a little thing where in the past... Frank writes with uh, one of those wood-burning pens on the desk. I'm still here, Chief, to let him know, you know, he survived the fire. You did it. Yeah, that's – I forgot about that. Yeah, another little thing that he – he takes a, a little burning thing and burns on the desk. And that's how John knows his dad survived. And so here comes the big chat, which I just wrote in my notes, the magic talk. That's what I called this scene. Yeah, absolutely. And – uh Again, you know, it, you you can't help but get chills on it. You know, uh, the you know they they both know now. Holy crap! I'm talking to my dad who died 30 years ago, or I'm talking to my son who at this point uh, um, is what six years old. Mm -hmm. You know, and of course, you know, you you get the feels when he says, "You're still my little chief, right?" Yeah, that's the thing. You think of this from John's point of view. He's talking to the father that he never knew and like that this is the whole premise of back to the future if people don't think back to that movie what the point of that movie was that when they wrote that uh, gail and zemeckis they're like what would it be like to know your father back when he was your age because no kid is ever going to know that you're never going to know your dad in high school so this is that same premise like john and frank are talking and they're effectively the same age they're both in the 30 in their 30s late 30s maybe and so this has got to be really trippy to john to be talking about his father when his father was in his prime but it's got to be doubly creepy and weird for the father talking to his six-year-old son now that he's an adult. Yeah, you know, both of them have no no memories of, like, what this person is. So, of course, they have to go through it all. Did you make the major leagues? No. Oh, so you're a firefighter, right? No, I became a cop. You know, the one thing you didn't want me to be. And then they go through all the history things, uh, uh, kind of like Back to the Future when I joked before about – Ronald Reagan, the, the the president, you know, oh, 70 home runs. It's a record that'll never be beaten. And uh, uh, talking about cell phones and uh, the Apollo space mission and, and all these things, you know, you could go on and on talking, uh, uh, you know, about future. But, of course, then it all goes back to the World Series. He wants to find out how the whole series goes. <laughs> yeah, the World Series will take precedence over everything, which – probably was accurate for queens in 1969 to be honest yeah you know everybody everybody had a uh, amazing fever yeah but i gotta point out so john in the future says you know dad even though you survived you gotta be more careful i can't lose you again he's like it's so weird i have good memories of you i have memories when you're not here it's so trippy and the dad can't quite wrap his head around that but john just says you gotta be more careful because i can't lose you and he points out you're going to die of smoking. And Frank, you know, in the 60s, everybody smokes. So Frank th thinks this is complete bullshit. Yeah, he's, he's smoking like a chimney uh, all the time. He says, you know, your grandfather smoked two packs a day and he's still fine. 
Um, but yeah, uh, he tells him he's, he's got a quick smoking and then, you know, you get this pause in the conversation. It's like, Hey, it's getting late. And, and, you know, here's where, here's where you get the Niagara Falls with our silent movie star Buster Poindexter, you know, the, uh, the I love yous, uh, across the, the 30 years, you know, I love you, son. And I love you too, dad. And I missed you. And, uh, yep. Niagara Falls. Yeah. Again, this is, uh, I just wrote in my notes that this scene tugs at the heartstrings really hard. So watch out if you're sensitive. And again, I don't have parents. I didn't know my dad especially well. This is a rough moment where the dad says, you know, you're still my little chief, right? And like you said, says, yeah, I'm trying, dad. I'm trying. And then at the end, you know, I love you, dad. I've missed you so much. And they, they don't want to hang up because they, this is all being caused by this weird Aurora Borealis. And they're concerned the minute they end this call, they may never talk to each other again. And that's the thing. In this movie, you're probably not going to see Dennis Quaid ever interact with Doom Caviezel because we know that he dies. So that's the thing. There's never really going to be a physical interaction between the two. That's why this is so special. This might be all they're ever going to have. And Caviezel's on you know, the highest of highs, the best day of his life. He gets to talk to his dad. And, of course, he wants to talk to his mom about it. So before he goes to bed, he calls his mom, gets gets a machine, call me when we can, which is ends up to be an important point. Yeah, I, I had forgotten how, you know, neck-breaking the plot twists and turns are in this movie. <laughs> the minute something good happens, something tragic will happen. And this is where we learned, as Doc Brown once warned us, don't change things in the past because it will have terrible after effects in the future. And that's why this day that uh, Frank was supposed to be dying in the fire will now become the temporal junction point in the words of doc Brown. Once again, because Frank living is going to cause a terrible side effect. And that terrible side effect is the mom dies instead of him. <laughs> yeah. And again, this sounds conv convoluted in the plot, but it actually makes sense in the story that when Frank, the fireman survives, he goes to visit his wife to celebrate the fact that he just didn't die in a fire. He goes, she's a nurse in a hospital. He goes and talks to her and she is not supposed to be there in the hospital that night. In real life, her husband died. She was rushed home to mourn, to learn the news. She was not in the hospital that night. And apparently there was like an interaction, right? Some kind of drug interaction that some intern had put with a, had, had injected into a patient. It was actually a doctor. She, you know, nurses, nurses are the lifeblood of, of hospitals. Uh, as we found here uh, uh, with COVID, nurses are, are, the, are the biggest heroes. And she uh, she sees a doctor who's going to go give uh, some sort of drug to a patient. And she says, what are you doing? He's I'm giving him this. No, don't give him this. I gave him this and when he was admitted. And if you give him that, he's going to die. And the doctor looks at the chart and he's like, oh, oh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. So Julia, the nurse, saves this patient's life. And unbeknownst to anybody in this movie, we talked about kind of uh, kind of yada yada over it earlier. There's this serial killer in the 60s called the Nightingale Killer who just stopped. He stopped killing at a certain point. It was unsolved. That's what that body they found was. This man that she saves the life of in the hospital is the Nightingale Killer. We won't learn that until later. But like Frank being there unexpectedly saves the life of the serial killer who's now going to continue his crimes and we're going to find out one of his future victims is john's mom so by saving john's dad john killed his own mother yeah in, in you know the next scene we've seen is is totally you know speaking of 1969 it's totally trippy 
where uh, Jim uh, uh, Caviezel, God, good lord, uh, John. So we see John in bed having these terrible dreams, and he's he's seeing a, a funeral, and he's seeing his dad, and uh, um, so he wakes up in the middle of the night, makes a call, and uh, calls to call his mother, and boom, it's it's not his mother's number anymore. He calls a deli. So you know he realizes, oh my god, I screwed up. I screwed up this in my life. What does he do next? He figures out another thing he screwed up in his life previously. He goes to talk to his girlfriend. She doesn't remember him. She has no idea who he is. She just knows, oh, you're a friend of uh, Gordo's. Yeah, he gets gaslighted. It's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So John now has three sets of memories. He's got the memory of growing up without a father. He has a memory of growing up with a father and a mother. And now he has a a memory of his mother dying when he was like eight years old or seven. I don't know, but it's like he's he's just getting – he has too many memories flooding his head. It's messing with him, and he goes into work. He's like – he's Satch. Like he works with Satch. I guess we should clarify that earlier. I don't know if we mentioned that. Satch, the next-door neighbor, grew up. He's the senior cop. John is more the junior cop, and they work together. And Satch is like, what's wrong? And so John starts saying, well, there's something wrong. You know, I have all these memories, and, uh, you know, my mother and the the Nightingale killer – and this is where Satch drops the plot twist about the Nightingale killer that, uh, oh, yeah, your mom was killed by the Nightingale killer 30 years ago. Don't you remember that? And, of course, he doesn't. No. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just I'll sum this up. I don't want to get too convoluted in the plot. In real life, in 1969, this Nightingale killer was a guy who killed nurses. He killed three nurses, and then he stopped. And in the reality of 1969, it's because he overdosed at the hospital. They accidentally killed him with a drug interaction. He stopped, so that was the end of the case. So all the people like like John know, oh, this is an old serial killer case where he killed three people. Now he looks at the Nightingale killer files, and he learns, no, he didn't kill three. He killed ten. It's still unsolved, but my mom was one of the victims. And he's like, oh, my, oh my God, what did I do? So, of course, he's got to run to his dad and say, we got to fix this. We fixed it so great before we, we killed mom. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I, we're laughing, but it's not funny in the movie. This is a terrible tragedy. Like, not only did they kill the mom, they killed seven or six other women. They they have a, a death toll of seven at this point. Yeah. And, you know, of course, uh, uh, Frank's first uh, first thought is we got to save the mom. And John says, you know, yeah, we got to save mom. But we got to save all these other girls, too, because if we don't, we got to live with this the rest of our lives. <laughs> we messed up big time. <laughs> yeah, this is a a horrible thing. And so that's the real plot of this movie. It's kind of funny. People remember it as the dad and son talking. And those are wonderful scenes. But that's just setting up the plot of this movie where there's this serial killer operating, killing nurses. Nobody's ever caught him. Nobody knows who he is. But John and Frank are going to kind of work together to stop this. And. The, the deal is John knows the history. He knows the case files. He knows where the killer is going to be, who he kills, blah, 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 what his M.O. is. But Frank is going to have to go do all the dirty work and try to stop him each time. And so that's that's, that's the teamwork here. So uh, you know, Frank has to be the, the, the cop, and he has no idea what he's doing. So John has to coach up his dad on how to make the firefighter a cop. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is a – I like this. I know Roger Ebert didn't like this plot. I know some reviewers don't. I think it's pretty cool. I've never personally seen this in a movie myself. So I, to me, it's not convoluted. But, yeah, so Dennis Quaid has to, like, go to the, 
this one woman, uh, Carrie, someone was in a bar at 6.30. She left the bar at 7.30. They found her da- dead in an alley at 8 o'clock. So he's like, Dad, go to that bar and just kind of hang out and see what happens. And Frank, of course, wants nothing to do with this, but he kind of feels like he's beholden at this point. He has to. So what does he do? Girls offer him a drink. He goes over there, and he just hangs out with pretty girls all night instead. Thankfully, one of the girls was the girl he was trying to save. I love this. Okay, so... Yeah, uh, Dennis Quaid is supposed to stop the serial killer and sit in the bar and observe, but he doesn't. Instead, he flirts with the victim, and it scares the killer away. And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. That worked. Yeah, uh, but then, you know, next thing we find out is uh, the body that they found was this woman, Mary Finelli, that they uh, ID'd from the dental records. Wait, the the body they found in 1999. Clarify that. Yes. So – we find out now that the body that was found in 1999 was identified as this Mary Finelli uh, through her dental records. She was reported missing in 68. So John being the great cop that he is realizes, oh, that means she was the first, which means he probably knew her. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we have something to go on finally. And he's still here in 1999. He's looking at the files and boom, the Carrie Reynolds file is gone and he says he did it his dad saved this woman's life okay yeah two two really important things to point out here this is definitely a the silence of the lamb subplot i love that movie i don't know if georgia would be able to get through that one that one might be a little horrific for you have you been able to get through silence of the lambs yeah you know i can watch killer movies it's it's stupid slasher well, not, I, I'm sorry I said stupid with what I'm going to say next, but like Friday the 13th or those kind of movies, that's those are the ones I can't do. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, Silence of the Lambs, there's a big plot twist where when you find out who Buffalo Bill's first victim is, you know where his crime started because in the words of uh, Hannibal Lecter, we covet what we see every day. So if you know the first victim in the pattern, you can kind of tell where the killer lived. And so this body they found in 1999, John starts doing a little detective work, figures out her name is Mary Finelli, knows the killer, probably knew her. So we're going to have dual serial killer investigations going on simultaneously here. It's going to be kind of confusing to talk about 1999 and 69, the the dad and son are both doing detective work. And this sets up what, what I think is, you know, this movie has all been father, son, you know, hit, hit you in the feels kind of stuff. But now we get our first uh, mother son hit you in the feels thing uh because as we know in the plot the mother's dead and this reality this third reality that we're at in the movie and john gets on the ham radio to talk to dad uh you know we did it we did it and in the background julia his mom is now there and and this get this gave me a little bit of a feels moment um you know to talk a little bit about my past is my parents got divorced when I was very young. And oddly, in, in these kind of situations, I lived with my father. Uh, my sister and I both lived with my father. So it was my mother that was uh, the one that you know I saw on weekends. And then we moved to Florida, so I would only see her uh, you know, for, for vacations and stuff like that. So I didn't – I had more of that long-distance uh, relationship with her. So in this case – the mother uh, being there um, and him having that conversation with with mom uh, uh, and he's lost his mom. Now, I didn't lose her officially, but 
I lost a lot of the relationship that most people have. So in this case, he's talking to uh, Frank and the mom comes on and, you know, he's he's lost his mom in his reality. And, you know, he, he says uh, he's talking about being a police and, my, you know, my mom wouldn't let me have a gun. Um, and she says, you know, I bet she's she's proud of you being a, a police officer. And he says, I hope so. And he's getting choked up and I hope she knows how much I love her. And, um, you know, she says, oh, she knows. Moms always know. Yeah, I mean, ditto. It's a it's a rough one. If you uh, lost a parent, these scenes are going to get you when the kid's talking to his dead mom from 30 years ago. It's a tough one. And then, and then he talks to himself. I always forget about this, that, that Dennis Quaid's like, hey, let me put little chief on. You can talk to see talk to this guy, John. He's a cop. And little little John's like, hello. And John's like, hey, little buddy, how you doing? Like he's literally talking to himself. It's a really cute scene. Yeah, but the best was Gordo when he gets to talk to Gordo and Gordo comes on. I am an intergalactic traveler from the planet Earth. <laughs> yeah. like, All right, Gordo, you're a dork. Yeah, Gordo, this little doofus redhead kid uh, comes on and, and John. Now, in real life, John knows Gordo in 1999 as a failed investor who never invested in Yahoo and never got rich like all his friends. So John gives little six-year-old Gordo some advice. Hey, you know, there's one magic word I want you to remember your entire course of your life. And Gordo's like, really? What is it? And John's like, Yahoo. Just re remember that word. Make that your mantra. Write it down. So he's going to ensure this kid's going to get rich one day. Although, it does lead to the question, why doesn't he give some get-rich-quick scheme to himself? You think that would help him? Hey, hey, you know, uh, little little chief, why don't you invest in Microsoft at some point? Well, you know, the, 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 again, we already said at the beginning of this we weren't going to talk about the plot holes. <laughs> yes. and, yeah, and to be fair, they've already killed seven people by changing history, maybe more. So. Yeah, if he gives them the sports almanac from 2000, it might, uh, you know make Saddam Hussein live or something. <laughs> yeah, okay, so here we go. It's a now a cop detective movie for the rest of the movie. Now, admittedly, they did not stop the serial killer, the Nightingale killer. He was supposed to kill this girl, Carrie Reynolds. Frank didn't stop him. He just kind of prevented her from, like, Frank didn't catch the killer. He just prevented Carrie from, from dying. So, although there is a plot twist in a deleted scene, Carrie is now, because Carrie survives, she now walks into an orphanage and she detonates a suicide vest. So they've now killed 300 orphans as well. Eh, well, at least their parents won't be sad. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> okay. But anyway, they've, they've, they made one girl survive, and then she goes to blow up an orphanage. But now we have the second girl. And this is the one that's really going to get dicey where John tells his dad, all right, now you got to stop the second murder. You did fine with Carrie Reynolds. Now her name's Sissy Clark. She lives in this apartment. So-and-so she's going to die tomorrow. And here's the story. She leaves work at 2 AM. She's killed in her apartment about 2:15 or three or something like that. And he's like, dad, you got to follow this girl and make sure she doesn't die and see if you can find the killer. And he does say, dad, be careful. Fast forward. He is not careful. He is not. He gets his ass kicked by the Nightingale killer. All right. So anyway, this next scene, it's a good 20 minutes of movie. It's very tense, very well done scene where Frank is following the Nightingale killer as John is investigating this girl, Mary Finelli, who's the first victim. Simultaneously, John finds a suspect, blah, 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 who lives next door or something. Or no, it's, he's in her diary, right? Uh... It doesn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> 
Anyway, John has a suspect that he thinks is the Nightingale Killer, but at the same time, we're going to see Frank utterly fail at his job to stop the Nightingale Killer. And so let's talk about that scene. Yeah, Frank's Frank's not a cop, and uh, Frank is hanging out at this bar, uh, um, and the Nightingale Killer notices that it's the same guy that was hanging out at the bar with three pretty girls, one of which he wanted to kill the, you know, a night or two before. So um, he realizes this guy is following him. So it's the end of the night. He wants to kill this person. But uh, so uh, Frank goes to the bathroom so he doesn't make it conspicuous that he's he's tailing the Nightingale killer. And Nightingale comes in. Why the hell are you following me? Kicks the crap out of him. Uh, uh, knocks him out and, and takes his uh, his driver's license. Yeah, this is this is very important to the plot. This is a neat little plot device. So the Nightingale Killer punches out Dennis Quaid, knocks him out, is going to strangle him. He's actually going to kill Dennis Quaid. He's got a little piece of cord that theoretically is going to go use to strangle Sissy Clark later that night. He's got his little strangling cord, and he doesn't get a chance because other people are there. He can't kill him, so he's like, oh, this guy passed out, blah, blah, blah. He steals Dennis Quaid's wallet, but drops the wallet, just takes the driver's license. So at this point, the serial killer goes and kills Sissy Clark. He has Dennis Quaid's home address and name, which is very dangerous, but he has left a fingerprint on the wallet, and that's very important. Yeah, and, and, and not only that, but he has he has the driver's license because Frank wakes up from, from being knocked out, goes to Sissy Clark's house, and banging on the door it's the police of course raises the suspicions of the neighbors who are peeking out and he ends up uh uh picking the lock with his credit card gets in there and finds the dead body you know oops i guess this one didn't work yeah so at the end of the day what's going to happen is dennis quaid is going to get framed for these murders is that he happened to be there when a dead body was found his driver's license is going to be left at the scene the the nightingale killer is going to frame him so Dennis Quaid is going to be wandering in the world of shit here where they're going to think he's the Nightingale killer because he knows a little too much about this. And this is going to be a problem. Now, we're not there yet. We're going to get there in a second. Let's talk about this wallet fingerprint scene first. So they get back on the ham radio and, uh, you know, Frank, I screwed up. I screwed up. The girl's dead. You know, I, I didn't do it. And in the conversation, Frank tells John He's, you know, he stole my wallet. Oh, did he take, he take anything from you? Oh, he just took my, my license. He goes, wait a minute. He touched the wallet. You know, that means, you know, as, as a, he's a police officer, that would have his fingerprints on there. So here's what you do. You know, be very careful. Take it out of your pocket. Put it somewhere where I can find it. Nobody else will find it for 30 years. So he's got one of those uh, sitting nooks in a window in, his, in the house. And he, he lifts it up. He lifts the cushion. And there's a plank at the bottom. And he, he wraps it up in, in plastic and he Frank puts it under there. And in 1999, John, you know, John in the, you know, an instant later lifts up the cushion that's there, lifts up the plank, opens, you know, opens it up, finds the plastic and boom, it's right there. And he yells into the ham radio. I got it. <laughs> that is a great moment. That is a uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Hey, I did steal, steal my dad's keys. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's it. I mean, Quaid, uh, uh, you know, Frank almost goes like, wow. I think he actually does give a Keanu Reeves, wow. That's the big moment. That's the big time travel moment when Dennis Quaid hides the wallet from 1969 under the floorboards. It instantly appears under the floorboards in 1999. And uh, his little son, John, little chief, now has a fingerprint. And now they can go match it and find who the Nightingale killer is. And 
Unfortunately, this is going to be very bad news when they find out who it is. It's a cop. <laughs> it's a cop. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's funny. I was this is a little off subject, but I was just watching the movie The Dream Team the other day. Do you know that the old comedy with Michael Keaton from the eighties? I know it. I remember it. Michael Keaton and in Christopher Lloyd and some, you know, it's uh, what are they? People from like a, a mental asylum or something? Yeah, they're mental patients that are going to a baseball game in Yankee Stadium for the day, and their doctor gets beaten up and assaulted and knocked unconscious. So it's four mental patients in New York for the day, and comedy ensues. And anyway, I was watching that in preparation for maybe doing a staff picks episode on it, but it's not good. It's it's terrible, but. It falls into the trap that so many movies from the 80s fall into, where even though it's a comedy, all of a sudden it's a mistaken identity murder investigation, and there's a crooked cop at the center of it, which is like so many mundane, mediocre comedies of the 80s, it drives me insane. They have to fall back on that crutch. I'm just laughing because I hate that subplot so much in the Dream Team, yet that's the exact subplot in this, and it works fine in this one. Oh, it's a corrupt cop. Cool. <laughs> Well, there's, you know, definitely no evidence of corrupt cops in 2021, so. <laughs> yes. Thank you for dating the podcast, George. There's definitely there's definitely no corrupt cops in 2022 or 2023 or 2024. Exactly. Whenever you're listening to this, I'm sure cops are all great. But, yeah, so that's the thing in this movie, that the Nightingale Killer back in 1969 was a cop. John gets a fingerprint hit from the wallet that his dad passed him. It's a cop named Jack Shepard. And John's like, oh, shit, it's a cop? No wonder he got away with it. And turns out this guy is still partially active. He's a private investigator. And this is where we get the scene in the 90s where John goes to confront this guy who's now an old man and thinks he's gotten away with murder for 30 years. Yeah, this scene, this was probably the scene that I liked the least in it because it's just this. I know Ebert said the movie's contrived. This was the contrived scene to me. Because the guy's just sitting at a bar, you know, former cop, and uh, John comes in to talk to him. You know, hey, funny thing, uh, uh, you you were a former cop. You look like a cop. Yeah, I was a cop. And uh, oh, oh yeah, when were you? Oh yeah, you know, funny enough, I uh, we I working on one of your case a case from back then, Nightingale murders. You might have heard of them. You know, a missing teenager found some bones. First victim, she probably knew the killer. You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, the weird how those old bones happen, right? We all have skeletons in the closet. You just never know when they're going to pop up and bite you in the ass, huh, Jack? Yeah, I do agree. This scene feels like it would only happen in a movie. In real life, they'd silently build the case behind the scenes and then surprise the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Like, no, don't tell the guy that you got something on him so he can try to do something about it. Yeah, I'm going to arrest you for the Nightingale murders you did 30 years ago. By the way, my name is John Sullivan. I live at 234 Maple Drive if you'd like to come by and kill me said at some point. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give Ebert this point. <laughs> yeah, but we do learn that this guy Jack Shepard, the serial killer, not only killed all these 10 nurses back in the 60s, we also learn he killed his own mother, which is a wonderful little plot device. His mom was a nurse too. Yeah, you know, and this this goes back to the beginning of the movie where uh, John goes to visit Shepard's dad, who uh, was who John visited at the beginning when they found that initial body mm -hmm. because it was like across the street where they found it, and we find out that uh, um, the son, you know, the the son lived there. The son was a cop, and not only that. 
but there's the the mother who John talked to uh, before in the original reality. She's no longer around because uh, she was brutally murdered and never uh, was solved. So we just have to assume that that was the Nightingale's first first victim before Mary Finelli. Wow, I never I. I have to watch the movie again. I never caught that. So the mom is there at the start of the movie and then she's not later. Uh, I believe so. But if it's, I'm going to double check it after this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So that's the premise of this movie. You had the serial killer back in the sixties. He killed his own mother and then he uh, changed his MO because he wanted to start killing other nurses. I guess he got enough, (laughs) enough jollies after, after doing whatever he, (laughs) does the thing that makes him feel like God to his own mother. And then he had to do that to other nurses, but he changed his MO. So the cops never realized that his mother was part of the pattern. Otherwise they would have caught him much earlier. So it's a really sick twisted tale of this guy, Jack Shepard, all these nurses he's killed over the years. And like George said, John announces, I'm going to catch you. I got you now. Although there is one good line here. He says, you went down for this crime 30 years ago, pal. You just don't know it yet, which that that's a good badass line. All right, I'll give you that one. But here we go. We think this movie's over. We think they've caught the uh, Nightingale killer, and they've done it. John and Frank have done it. But now we're going to get the big plot twist, the one that's really serious, where Frank is going to be arrested in 1969 for being the Nightingale killer. Yeah, because as we said, he he had the, the wallet stolen, or not the wallet, but he had the driver's license stolen, and Satch, uh, the cop, is uh the 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 tip comes in like hey this murder this is frank's id who's there and you know he wants to talk to frank like hey if you're messing around on the old wife you know let me know because if not you know you're gonna get uh you know murder rap yeah this is a big deal and this is becomes very serious because frank is going to be arrested and fingered for all the nightingale crimes and Satch has to come to arrest him, his best friend in the world. It's a horrific scene. Little Johnny's screaming. Julia, the wife, is screaming back in 69. It's just a terrible scene. And in all the chaos of Frank's arrest, the ham radio gets knocked over. The biggest tragedy of this of, of them all. So all of a sudden, as Frank's going to jail, he's probably going to get charged with the Nightingale crimes. But he just lost all his connection in 1999. He will never talk to Little Chief again. Yeah, so he's he's lost everything uh, at this moment. He's going to jail. He and he he he's he's stuck. He doesn't have the person who can help him. Not only did he lose his son, he doesn't have the person who can help him get out of this because the ham radio is broken and he's going to be in jail. Yeah, it's at this point John has fucked up the future so much. It's like really terrible. He's made it so much worse. But okay, so. Most of the rest of the movie is going to happen in 1969 for a while because we've lost our connection to the 90s. John can't talk to his father anymore. So Dennis Quaid goes to jail and Satch is like interrogating him. He's like, you know, tell me what you know about the Nightingale killers. Why were you at the scene of the crime? Why was your driver's license under a body? Why do witnesses have you banging on her door? And Frank tries to tell him the truth, which is not going to go over real well, is it? No, uh, as as it, it wouldn't when you say I'm talking to my son over a ham radio and he is six six years old now, but I'm talking to him 30 years from now. He's a cop. He's told me all about these Nightingale's murders, and uh, yeah, you got to believe me. It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, it was the one-armed man. We're going for the the fugitive defense here, and he's not a one-armed man yet. Not yet. <laughs> 
little spoiler. Okay, so Satch wants to believe Frank. He doesn't think Dennis Quaid is a serial killer. But there's no evidence to prove that he's not. And Satch is like, help me. Give me something that can help me give you an alibi or prove you weren't there or prove you're telling the truth. Like, tell me something that will prove you are talking to your 36-year-old son in the future. Because he obviously thinks this is full of shit. And Frank does pull out something that he has. Because Frank actually knows something. And this becomes very important to the plot. Why baseball was so significant to this movie. What does Frank have that will become very valuable? What kind of knowledge? Frank does what John did to him. He tells Satch all about what happens in the World Series. And he tells him about the famous shoe polish game. Because that's the game that we're in right now. Uh, we're So the shoe polish incident was in the sixth inning. The Mets are down 3 nothing. Cleon Jones is coming to bat. And he gets hit in the foot by a wild pitch. They just think it's a wild pitch, but the manager just says, no, go out there. Look at his shoe. Uh, Look at the ball. I bet it's got shoe polish on it, and Cleon Jones has has shoe polish on his his shoes. So the umpire looks at the ball, sees the scuff mark from the shoe polish, and gives him first base. And uh, Clenenden Clenenden Jones – Don Clenenden, that's his name. That's a different guy. Don Clenenden comes up next, hits a 2-2 pitch into the bleachers. And then he tells what's going to happen in the rest of the game to get the Mets winning. So, of course, Satch is like, you know, what, what the hell? What, what are you talking about? But Frank says, watch the game and, you know, you'll see that I'm right. Yeah, this is one of the most distinct World Series of all time. Anybody who grew up in that era knows beat for beat how this World Series goes at the end. So Frank spells it out. Satch is like, that's bullshit. And Frank's like, just watch. It's going to happen. And so... In the midst of all this, a couple things are going to happen at once. Julia, the wife, is going to come down to the police station to find out what's going on. Satch is going to take her out to a coffee shop to kind of calm her nerves. She's like, is Frank cheating on me? Is Frank killing people? What's going on? So Satch is trying to calm her down. But while Dennis Quaid is left all alone in the holding cell, here comes the real serial killer, the Nightingale killer, who has learned. Again, he's a cop. He has learned they have arrested a suspect for the Nightingale crimes. He's going to come and basically force his way into the interrogation room, and he wants to basically kill Dennis Quaid because he knows Dennis Quaid has been on to him, and he knows more than he lets on. Yeah, so uh, Jack Shepard, which is the name of the cop, which, interestingly enough, time travel uh, Lost was uh, – the main character of Lost was Jack Shepard as well, uh, Matthew Fox. But Jack Shepard is the cop, and he comes in there, he pulls out his gun, and he says, you know, who the hell are you? And and, and, and how do you know all this? So Shepard is in the interrogation room with Frank, and then we see Satch with Jules, the wife, and Satch is explaining that he's been t- uh, talking on the ham radio. He swears he's talking to his son in the future, and Frank is going to go to jail unless you know something happens here. Um, and in the background um, – we have the baseball game going on. The commentator is is saying, oh, Cleon Jones hit with the ball. Uh, we might have a shoe polish play. Remember the Nippy Jones shoe polish play of the 1957 World Series in Milwaukee? Because <laughs> that's how all commentators, of course, talked in 1969. <laughs> so all this time that Satch and Jules are talking and Shepard has uh, been called out of the interrogation room 
by uh, to talk to a cop who's asking him, why the hell are you here uh, uh, talking to this suspect? All this time, Frank is in the room and he's a fireman. He knows how to put out fires, but he also knows how to start fires. He knows electrical things. So he he gets a, a electric cord from a, a, a from the wall. He pulls it out. He opens up a fuse box because, you know, I always keep my fuse box in my interrogation room <laughs> and uh, puts pours coffee all over the floor. So Jack Shepard comes back in the room and steps into the pile of coffee and Frank hits it with the, the live wire and electrocutes uh, Jack, uh, the Nightingale killer, falls to the ground and all the lights go off in the police station. Yeah, so there's dual scenes going on that uh, uh, Satch is over there kind of watching the World Series out of the corner of his eye as he's talking to Julia and realizing that all the stuff that Dennis Quaid said is going to happen is happening. And he's like, what the hell? And he's watching the 69 World Series, and he starts to realize, because Julia is kind of backing up the story. Oh, yeah, Frank talks to this guy John on the radio every night. It's John. He's a cop. And so Satch is like, is Frank actually telling the truth? And so he basically realizes that maybe all this is accurate and maybe maybe the serial killer is a cop. So Satch goes running back to the station. But this is right when Dennis Quaid has outsmarted the serial killer and knocked him out. And it's kind of a uh, little uh, bit of retribution here. This time Dennis Quaid knocks out the serial killer and he takes his wallet and his ID basically to find out where the guy lives, right? He's just trying to get the guy's address. Yeah, because Frank had... I'm sorry, because John had told him, you know, if this guy's a serial killer, he's he's probably got trophies. He's got evidence at his house that's going to link him to the Nightingale. Yeah, okay, and this is important because the last part of this movie, it's very fast. A lot's going to happen a lot at once, simultaneously, uh, action scenes. There's a lot of action here, so I'll try to be as succinct as I can. Dennis Quaid has the serial killer's address. He goes to the Nightingale's house. He fishes around and he finds the box of evidence, all this jewelry that this guy has stolen from every woman he has killed. And that's the evidence the cops need. The cops need. So the cops come, uh, Satch and the rest of the cops come to bum rush this guy, Jack Shepard's apartment, because maybe Dennis Coy was telling the truth. They find the evidence. They find all this stash. But in the interim, Jack Shepard has come home. He sees Dennis Quaid, pulls out a gun, and it's basically now one long gun battle for the rest of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Frank escapes out the fire escape, uh, Nightingale chasing after him, shooting him, chasing him uh, uh, down the down an alley into a, a dock district. They end up uh, – um, Frank disappears, and uh, Nightingale doesn't know where he is, and Frank reaches up from underneath the dock, and he pulls him into the water. So then you've got your uh, – your, your, You've got an underwater fight like they like to do in action movies where the gun, of course, gets uh, knocked out and, and, you know, how long can they stay underwater? And eventually Frank is able to knock out the Nightingale and get up and catch his breath, and then the Nightingale disappears. Yeah, so we're meant to think this is the finale of the movie, that Dennis Quaid has stopped the Nightingale killer. He's beaten him up, stolen his gun, and he thinks the Nightingale killer has drowned in the harbor, and he thinks he has stopped everything. And so, really, he's the hero. This is the end of the movie. He has solved the crimes. The police found all the evidence in the Nightingale's apartment. Dennis Quaid has saved the day. But it's not quite over yet because there is an epilogue in this movie that some people call goofy. I read one review that said it was uh, unintentionally funny. It wasn't supposed to be funny, but it was. 
It's uh, kind of action-packed. I don't know. We'll talk about this in a second because we're about to get the dual endings here where 1999 and 69 are going to overlap literally. So Frank thinks that he's, he's, he's done it, and he gets back uh, home, and he gets the ham radio, and he starts to put it back together because he wants to talk to uh, Lil Chief, tell him, we did it, we did it. And he, he gets the tools out, and he goes to light up a, a cigarette, and he says, nope, he tosses them away. He says, nope, I'm not doing it. And he gets the ham radio uh, repaired, and he talks to John. He says, Lil Chief, I'm back, I'm back, we did it, we stopped him. Yeah. And John's, John's like, uh, I don't think so, because I still have a memory of mom not being here. And this is, I think, where he, he looks at the picture, and it's no different than the picture before. So I'm not entirely sure what we're supposed to notice there. I think the mom was in the picture uh, in, initially in the movie. It was like a retirement ceremony or something like that. So I think the mom used to be in it, but now she's she didn't reappear. Okay. So it literally is like Marty McFly's siblings. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So here we go. Here comes the overlap scene. This is the big set piece action ending of this movie where the serial killer Jack Shepard in 1969 is going to come in and attack Dennis Quaid. He thinks Dennis Quaid thinks this guy's dead. He thinks all is right in the world. He's got his family. They're all safe. No, Jack Shepard's going to come attack him in his house simultaneously as the 1999 version of Jack Shepard. Old Jack Shepard comes and attacks John, the son. So we'll have two fist fights and gun battles going on at the same time in the same house, 30 years apart, and they can hear each other over the ham radio, which is trippy. Yeah, which which comes into play uh, uh, eventually. So um, Frank gets uh, gets beat again, and Jack Shepard takes out his, his handcuffs, and he handcuffs some door frame, which if I remember right, in 1999, you see the scratches or something on the door. Mm, probably. Yeah, that would probably be a good detail, yeah. Um, so Jack Shepard, uh, back in 1969 goes up to now kill or, or whatever the mom and gets into bed and she thinks it's her husband and, uh, she, she, he's getting ready to do something. And little chief, when he was little, little chief comes in the room, mommy and startles Jack Shepard. So, uh, it gives the mom Jules a chance to fight and she scratches Jack across the face and, uh, I mean, she must have not had her nails done in 15 years because she had, like, tiger claws because she, she scrapes his face. And then in 1999, he's got these scars that look like uh, uh, look like a, a team of hyenas attacked him. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, that's what, I love that moment in the movie. In 1969, Julia scratches Jack Shepard. And in 1999, you see these scars instantly appear on the side of his face. That's a cool little moment. So... Jack in 1969 runs down the stairs uh, to 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 chase after the boy and, she, and uh, uh, Quaid now has gotten himself loose. He, he got his tools to get the handcuffs off and um, has uh, the shotgun and he's getting ready to uh, uh, shoot Shepard and Shepard grabs little chief and uh, says, you know, you know, drop the gun or, uh, you know, I killed the kid. Yeah, this is really integral to the plot. I just want to talk about this for a second. So the Nightingale Killer has the gun pointed at little Johnny's head, little chief, and he's going to kill him. And this is the end of the movie in 1969. If he shoots little Johnny, he's going to then shoot Dennis Quaid. He's going to go up in whatever with the mom. And this is going to end the Sullivan family. This is it, 1969. The whole movie ceases to exist at that point. That's where we are. 
But right before Jack Shepard can kill little John and kill Dennis Quaid, he's distracted. And I love this little device that in 1999, Jack Shepard says, that's it, Sullivan, it's time to die. In 1969, Jack Shepard gets distracted by the sound of his own voice, and he turns to the right, and that's, that's all Dennis Quaid needs, basically, to turn the tables on him. Yeah, Jules comes running down the stairs like a banshee and jumps on Shepard uh, while he's distracted, and Lil' Chief gets to run away, and that gives Frank the opportunity to use that shotgun, and he uses it. Yeah, okay, if you've never seen this, this is quite a scene where... <laughs> In 1969, the Nightingale Killer reaches towards Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid pulls the shotgun out and blasts him right in the hand. Like, destroys this, guy hand, this guy's hand. Just an explosion of blood, sinew, everything. It just disappears. And we immediately cut to 1999. And you see he's about to shoot future John. And the guy's hand just starts shriveling away like the Marty McFly picture. It just disappears. And you see it in real time. And he's like, what the hell just happened to my hand? It's a... It's a Perhaps goofy, I don't know. Like I, like one review said, unintentionally funny, but it's a memorable little effect. Yeah, it wasn't the best special effects, but, you know, I don't know about you, but if my hand started doing that in real life, I think I wouldn't shoot somebody and I'd be pretty freaked out too. Yeah, but anyway, this is it's this really goofy scene, goofy special effect. The guy's hand disappears, and all of a sudden, just the minute Dennis Quaid blows this guy's hand off in 1969, everything changes, and it's a really trippy scene where... We're in 1999 now. This is little John, 36 years old. All of a sudden, his house changes. The furniture changes. The lights change. All of his memories change. There's more light in the house, more of a woman's touch. All of a sudden, his entire house is different. He's like, what the hell just happened? And now we get the big, exciting moment that I kind of set up earlier you were never going to see. But it does surprise you because you are going to see it here. You hear the pump of a shotgun, and then all of a sudden... Uh, uh, Jack Shepard gets shot in the stomach and uh, John is on the ground and doesn't know what the hell happened and he looks up and it's Dennis Quaid in old age makeup and he says I'm I'm still here chief yeah that now that is a moment I uh, I will tear up I will unabashedly admit I had a hard time getting through this moment in the movie when I watched it today I forgot I kind of forget you actually do get future Dennis Quaid that throughout the movie, little John has explained to his dad how you're going to die. You're going to die in a fire. You're going to die from lung cancer. And we're meant to understand they're never going to see each other. You will never see the two father and son physically touch each other or talk to each other. But it turns out, I guess Dennis Quaid listened to his advice and changed his lifestyle. And he's here all of a sudden, 1999. And John looks up and it's the first time in the movie that father and son see each other and embrace. And the dad says, I'm still here, little chief. And that, that is a tearjerker moment, to be honest. Yeah, I think the only thing that could have topped it if, if, is if uh, uh, they they screwed up the, the, the space-time continuum so much that instead of Dennis Quaid, it was Randy Quaid saying, Hello, boys, I'm back. <laughs> they got the wrong Quaid. Shit, we got to do the whole movie over. Don't mess with the time continuum, man. <laughs> Cousin Eddie, you bastard. That's right. <laughs> Jack Shepard, your shitter is full <laughs> of pellets. <laughs> now I got to go. I'm an Amish bowler now. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, that's the end of the movie that we see 
father, Dennis Quaid, in old age makeup. He's like 70, 65, whatever now. We see 36-year-old John, and they hug and embrace, and it's the first time they have ever really known each other. And now they have all these shared memories and shared history, and all is right in the world. And that's really kind of the end of the movie. We just have a nice little scene at the end with uh, it's like an epilogue of everyone in the movie on a baseball field playing softball together. You see John, he's like 36. You see old Dennis Quaid. You see the old mom. You see old Satch. You see Gordo, who's rich now, right? He has his Yahoo car. Yeah. Uh, Frank hits a, a foul ball and Gordo says, no, 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 not the Mercedes. I believe it was Mercedes. Not the Mercedes. And the ball hits the, it's a terrible special effect, but goes straight into the uh, headlight of the Mercedes and you, and it pans out and you see the license plate, one Yahoo. Yeah, nice little moment that he has helped out his old buddy Gordo. And really, it's a nice little moment. There's some Garth Brooks song that plays after it, which I think got nominated for an Oscar, perhaps. I kind of forget, but it didn't win. But yeah, it's a nice little scene. Although with the plot twist that Dennis Quaid is now a serial killer. So that's the problem. Well, Randy Quaid was a step away from it, so like like brother like brother, I guess. Yeah, but again, just a really nice feel-good movie. Really, uh, again, it's got some really tense adventure scenes. It's got some really nice intercut scenes where they're jumping back and forth between the past and the present at the same time. There's some great uh, performances. I really love, you know, it's weird. The scenes with Dennis Quaid and Jim Caviezel. They're never even in the same scene. They're just acting. It's them and talking to a radio, but it still works. It's it's really well done for what this movie actually is. Yeah, it's it's you know when you asked me to do this, it was uh it was on your list. I was like, oh yeah, I, I knew that movie. I liked it. But unlike Johnny Dangerously or Swingers, it wasn't something that I had seen you know twenty, thirty, forty times. So I did have to go back and watch this, and I appreciated it because. Uh, again, you know, I still have my dad and my mom, but, um, you know, it, it, it managed to touch this little Grinch's heart. Yeah. And I'm warning you again someday. I mean, I'm not trying to be a downer, but we will all lose our parents one day and this movie will hit you a little harder afterwards. I'm just telling you. Absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I talked about that audio cassette of, of the 1980 miracle on ice. I know that moment will come, uh, at some point, hopefully not soon. Um, but, um, you know, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I'll invest in a ham radio now, uh, just in case, <laughs> just in case that Aurora Borealis comes floating around again. That's right. And I can talk to my, my dad about the, uh, 2016 Chicago Cubs dream season. So you're, you're changing your original plan from talking about the 69 season and finishing them off. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's make sure my dad makes it, uh, uh, you know. Uh, way way past uh, 1969, and uh, let's 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 get him in the future. All right, and uh, one more thing I want to talk about uh, this movie. Just this movie is really near and dear to my heart. It's one of those that like hardly anybody ever talks about. So it's one of these rare ones. I kind of feel like it's my little movie. And like when I heard there was a TV series made out of it, I'm like, no, that's my movie. Stop stop remaking stuff. But I will say, yeah, there's probably plot holes in this movie, and. I don't care. Like, did, did, did the plot holes in this bother you, George? No, absolutely not. Like, turn off your mind. Enjoy a, a, a movie. Like, it, you don't have – it's time travel, okay? It doesn't exist. Or if it does exist, 99.9% .9 of the people listening to this podcast, you're not going to understand how it works. So shut up. Yeah, and again, like, 
they say, oh, you know, a plot hole ruins a movie from being perfect. But like, I'd argue imperfect movies are just as fun as perfect movies. So that's why that stuff doesn't bother me. But admittedly, probably the science and the reality of some of the plot holes are are not quite accurate. In fact, I was uh, reading some of the comments on Roger Ebert's review, and that was basically it's very polarized. People who really care about the fact that this movie has gaping plot holes and people who really don't. And I'm one who really doesn't. Unless the plot hole is the size of a shotgun shell uh, through your the middle of your palm, you know, I think you can ignore it. Okay, and one last thing, just to end on a serious note here. Everyone loves baseball movies. Everyone loves Field of Dreams. Everyone loves father-son movies, and that's the one that all they always talk about. Oh, the father-son baseball movie, the tearjerker, the weepy movie. But I will flat out say... I think this movie should be right up there with Field of Dreams when it comes to father-son baseball movies. And again, you may, not specifically you, George, but just anybody listening, you may have had to lose your father to really grasp that. But again, I would put this right up there with Field of Dreams. They are equally powerful to me, to be honest. Well, again, I put it number two behind Like Father, Like Son because of Dudley Moore, but it's, it's a close second. All right. And once again, thank you for joining me. Uh, I know that was a that's a very convoluted movie to uh, talk about. I, I know you guys aren't going to hear it in the podcast, but George and I had lots of stops and starts where we start talking about a scene and then we stopped and redid it because it's it's too complex and it's two movies going on at once. So I hope you appreciate how polished the final version will sound, because it really wasn't when we were doing it. We were trying our best. And yes, uh, I, I still don't know that I've got 100% of the baseball right, but you know, you you said that the Mets, I hate the Mets, and well, Mets fans are going to hate me because I'm sure I screwed up some of their uh, prized World Series facts. Yeah, and just one last correction, Buster Keaton was not the third baseman for the 69 Mets, George was incorrect about that. But Buster Bluth was. <laughs> All right. Once again, I am Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more hidden little gems like frequency that just need a little more love in the world. And I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Until next time, give a hug to your dad. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Spirit and Guts! Still here, Chief. During the day, you could chew the band with China. <laughs>